René Guénon was the first one who made a major breakthrough and he wrote some things. And then he became so afraid. You say, well, he was paranoid. He was, uh, he knew he was a pretty knowledgeable person. He simply got totally paranoid that he wrote too much and that Shambhala is pissed off at him because he shouldn't have said too much in public. What I'm saying now is not really in public. We are in a yoga school, in the hall of a yoga school. For most people, this story is so outrageous that they scratch their head and they say, we don't know what to believe. Like if this thing which I'm talking to you about since last week, if this is true, there is nothing in the discoveries of the 19th or 20th century, ending with atomic energy and bombs and space travel and you name it, which compares to this. Like this information is much bigger and much more relevant for the life of this planet than anything that has happened around. Maybe the coming of Jesus was of equal importance, you know. Like we're talking about things which are milestones. And thus, um, fact is that René Guénon himself was not an enlightened being. He was just a high-level initiate with a very formidable knowledge of things. And he wrote, but he wrote out of a grudge, you know. He just wanted to take a revenge on that guy to show, to put him in his place, you know, to show him that he should shut up because he doesn't know what he's talking about. And then he wrote a book which contains some amount of ego to it. And then he thought, oops, I screwed up. The result of this was that René Guénon actually moved on another continent changed his name, he changed what in Vedanta is called Nama Rupa, that everything is described by its Nama and Rupa, the name and the form. He changed his name, he changed his form. Just for you who are curious to know what did René Guénon was originally a teacher in mathematics, a mathematician, very intelligent man, and then he became an esotericist and a metaphysician. And after this episode, taking advantage of the chaos produced by the Second World War, immediately after or during it, I don't know exactly, I don't remember the timeline, but somewhere around that time, he moved to Cairo. Cairo is a messy city even now in 2018. In 1940, Cairo was a jungle. It was a place where you could get lost. No, nobody had ID. There was no computer population evidence or anything. There was just a place where you'd go and disappear. So René Guénon lived the final years of his life in Cairo. He became a sheikh of the Islamic religion. They acknowledged him because he was such a knowledgeable person. So they gave him the degree of sheikh. He got married to an Islamic woman and he changed his name in something Islamic. I forgot if you go on internet, you'll find it immediately. If you look at his life on Wikipedia or something, you'll find out where he went and so on. And he did all this because he simply wanted to disappear from the public eye. He simply said, oops, I overdid it. This shows, it should show, that the book called The Lord of the World, or if you read it in French, Le Roi du Monde, is a very, very outstanding book. If you are interested in Shambhala and esotericism, especially because it's 120 pages brochure, you shouldn't miss it. Anyone interested in subjects like this, sooner or later should read The Lord of the World. 
It's a book which is written in very high academic language. This is not a brochure, a sensationalist type of new age crap literature. This is an academic, intelligent analysis of what humanity knows clearly about Shambhala. That's, for example, where René Guénon reveals that the three mage kings who came to visit Jesus two days, three days after he was born were actually people from Shambhala. And how their names have been, one of them was called Balthazar, one of them was called Melchior, and where these names come from and how they relate to Shambhala and all that. So René Guénon is showing a lot of stuff and gives some information, but he claimed he was about to pay dearly. Like Shambhala was not happy to have a book published pulling the curtains like this. Simply because Shambhala is completely aligned with Dharma. They are completely moral and ethical spiritual people. And because of this, they do karma yoga for God. And they are exactly like when you are in a theater and you see a theater play, you don't want to see the people who lift the curtains or the people who blow steam on the stage or all the special effects people. Even the orchestra is hidden somewhere down and it sings music from somewhere down there. Like in a show, there is a part of the show which is invisible and those are the people that pull the strings and which are handling all the nuts and bolts of the things. And that is Shambhala. And thus, I told you the story of René Guénon to understand that people don't want to write much about it. After René Guénon, things started getting a bit convoluted because there was a lot of... There is a phenomenon which is this Svadhisthana, this New Age Svadhisthana. The New Age people have a very rich imagination. And where they don't know, they replace it with what they imagine that it should be. Like if there are six, seven chakras and seven colors of the rainbow, which is not true because there are six according to physics, not seven. But if there are six, seven chakras, whatever, let's not have a 101 in physics. And are, then the chakras should be like the colors of the rainbow. And then the third chakra would be yellow and the fourth chakra would be green which is completely not true. The heart chakra is not green and the Manipura chakra is not yellow. So these are imaginative New Age people who if nobody told them exactly, then they figured it out. But they figured it out wrong. So the same started happening with Shambhala. Some people got so enthusiastic about it that they started figuring out lots of funny stuff about it. There is a guy, a Russian guy called um, Roerich, uh, who wrote half true, and he was very friendly with the Tibetan culture. Then he started writing nonsense about Shambhala. He was just a Svadistanistic painter, an artist, and half he knew, and half was his right brain hemisphere, who was imagining things like an artist would do, you know. So this is the problem, that there is no scientific accuracy in these spiritual matters. Very often people are just going raving about one thing or another. And um, others and others, there exists a light somewhere along the line 
that in the 1960s, an American author called Thomas Andrew, Andrew Thomas, uh, both seem like they are first names, but uh, Andrew is his last name. So Thomas Andrew wrote a book which is called Shambhala, Oasis of Light. That's a very important book because it is approximately 90% accurate. Uh, Thomas Andrew does an excellent archaeological and historical work. Half of that book is full of facts from history and archaeology, which demonstrate to the point of giving you goosebumps that this thing with Shambhala is as real as it gets. We are not, I'm not telling you fairy tales. It's right under our noses, but because they like to be not seen, you don't see them unless they allow you to see them at some point, and to what extent that is also important. So actually what I'm doing here, I'm simply giving you a pre-warning. In the end, I'll get more stern on this. I'm giving you a pre-warning about lots of perverted information about Shambhala. Exception made of the king, the lord of the world of René Guénon, and Shambhala, Oasis of Light, that's the full title of the book. We also have it in the library of Agama. Exception made of those two, most of what is written about Shambhala is at least 50% nonsense and mixed up with so much wrong information, you won't know which is wrong and which is right. It's one of the reasons for which I'm giving this series of lectures to first of all clarify what is known for sure. And then from there to see what can be logically inferred or what is clear enough. So, some of this information is simply New Age hysteria, like Svadistanistic people making things up. It's something which happens all day long, especially in the last 55 years. Ever since the hippie times, the hysterics got access to pen and paper and they started writing hysteric improvisations and the world is full of bullshit books. I'm not going now to start listing some of the most insane uh, literature written like claiming to be spiritual and actually being deeply pathological. Those people needed medical help not to be allowed to write books. And then there is some adulterated information which is adulterated on purpose. Things were getting worse because some people realized that there is a lot of enthusiasm around this idea. They saw what the Theosophical House did. The Theosophists said there is no religion higher than truth. We don't care if it's Buddhism or Hinduism or Christianity. We just want the truth. Like how does reincarnation work? Does everybody reincarnate? How? When? How many years? How does the karma determine the duration of the stay in the astral world between two reincarnations? Is there any scientific way of doing this? So the theosophists, they try to bring the Western scientific method and rationalism in the Eastern mysticism. And the world was taken by storm. People were crazy about theosophy. All the mystical people in Europe and America, they were crazy about the Theosophical movement in the 1920s. It was the big thing. And then some people saw, oh, look how much enthusiast this is. Then we can take over. 
we can use this because people have dreams about this and we can cater to their dreams. We can feed their need for this big daddy, which would be Shambhala or something like this. Only that they started giving adulterated information pointing in the wrong direction. No? Like, according to your just understanding now, try to think about this. The history of mankind in the last 200 years has signaled the appearance of a way of life which is almost universal on this planet, which is called democracy. Is democracy something which is done by Shambhala or hated by Shambhala? Because if you are going out there, you are going to see that some people say one thing and some people say the other thing. And it can't be both. So somebody is lying. Somebody is lying through their teeth because they want to encourage certain political, social trends by using and saying, even Shambhala would love things to be that way. So, later about that, those are final things, but I'm just warning you about the fact that the subject is not easy because it's pushing a lot of buttons and Shambhala would never make a public statement to clarify things. As far as Shambhala is concerned, for 99.9% of the population of this world, they don't exist. It's like the story in The Man in Black. Look at this pen, gentlemen. Uh, you know, like, if you forget, that's the best. If you have no spiritual interest, forget about Shambhala. It's none of your concern. Ah, that spiritual people want to practice Kala Chakra Tantra and to go telepathically in touch with the king of the world from Shambhala, those people are allowed to. It's part of their spiritual practice. It's part of their initiation. Like certain souls among you have become ripe enough to let go of all sorts of foolishness and emptiness and vanity and just focus on some important issues from a metaphysical and spiritual standpoint. For those people, Shambhala is ready to open its doors. No, it's exactly like from time to time, people get to know about Shambhala, but not people for whom it presents no importance. It's exactly like when Neo is trying to demonstrate, when Morpheus is trying to demonstrate to Neo in, May, in The Matrix, in the famous movie The Matrix, that the life, his life is controlled. And Neo gets sick and he says, I cannot accept this idea because I cannot simply accept the idea that there is something or someone which controls my life. So that's exactly why Shambhala, you'll never see it. As long as you are sick and scared that somebody controls your life, Shambhala will never show themselves to you. So that's why people don't know and don't need to know about Shambhala. It's a, that's why it's such an esoteric thing. So, I started, but what do we know about Shambhala? And uh, now let's go to some data before, so you understand a bit of the structure and what connection would it have with what's happening Sunday, like why there is some event related to Shambhala on Sunday. First thing which comes as things that we know, and many of them come 
from René Guénon. A couple of them have been added by Thomas Andrew, and a few other things picked here and there, especially from the Tibetan tradition and from all sorts of oral traditions in the Central Asian areas. All of them dovetail and confirm, like one is strengthening the other, or one is upsetting the other, and then one has to choose which one of them is more plausible, that it's like this or like that. <coughs> Shambhala, first of all, as far as we know, that's why it's called the Lord of the World, is not a republic. It's a monarchy. That means there is a person, an entity, somebody who once upon a time was a human being living among us, a sort of a Swami Shivananda, long time ago, who presently is called the king of Shambhala. Shambhala has a king. Of course, royalty in Shambhala is not a matter of blood. It's not blue blood or anything like this. It's not a DNA thing, especially because it's in the afterlife, it's in the spirit world. And also it's not based on Manipura Chakra power. It's not the strongest gorilla in the cage. It is simply the one which everybody considers most spiritual. Tibetans tell us a funny thing, that the kings of Shambhala change every 1,000 years in synchronicity with the Egyptian dynasties of yore and with the prophets of the Old Testament who lived around a thousand years. There is uh, information in Hindu scriptures that in Satya Yuga, the full lifespan of the human being was a thousand years instead of almost a hundred, like today. So, kings of Shambhala do their Karma Yoga for about a thousand years each. The king of Shambhala is attended by two deputies, because Shambhala from the very beginning, and I don't have a yantra here, but those of you who remember the yantra will visualize it. If not, go one day to the Ganesha Hall and see it, or see it and if we have it somewhere else in the school. And just for you to understand the symbol, because the symbol tells us a lot, uh, Shambhala has two main directions of activity. And thus, there are two deputies of the king of the world. And together with those two deputies, there exists a council of nine, according to René Guénon. So the leadership of Shambhala is the king of Shambhala, the two deputies, and nine, a council of nine, which makes a total of 12. The number 12 is very, very loved in spirituality. There are 12 tribes of Israel, there are 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, there are 12 spokes of Anahata Chakra, there are 12 signs of the Zodiac, there are 12 names of the sun and 12 movements in the sun salutation in Surya Namaskar. Ramakrishna himself made 12 disciples. When he died he had 12 disciples which he left. And the number 12 is very archetypal and that's why, going in archetypal ways, Shambhala is ruled by a council of twelve, structured the way which I have said. Those twelve are supposed to be the best Shambhala has at a given time. 
and um, a lot of secrets are being kept about this. René Guénon has dared to tell us the names of the title, not the names of the person, the names of the function, like there is a guy who is President of the United States. That's a title. So the titles are as outlined on that board. The top title is called Brahmatma, which in a very primitive translation would mean the spirit of the world, the soul of the world, the soul of this planet. Brahmatma is the Sanskrit name or a title for the king of the world. The king of the world is the Brahmatma and the two divisions are written there with the names Mahatma and Mahanga. It incidentally, the name Mahatma became very popular due to the Mahatma Gandhi. But before Mahatma Gandhi emerged as Mahatma Gandhi, there, were, there, were, there is literature, like for example, Sine or somebody published a book called Letters from the Mahatmas. And Mahatmas meant the great sages, the great men and women wise from the Himalayas or whatever. So Mahatma was more like a title and Mahatma obviously designates the, a very spiritual thing. And because it was very, very much used in the 1920s, 30s, then some people from India called Gandhi and they said, this man deserves to be called a Mahatma. This man is himself a Mahatma. So Mahatma was not his name. He was called whatever Gandhi. And he became nicknamed Mahatma Gandhi, the great Gandhi, the Mahatma. It's a title. And some Sanskrit sources, they give another name for Brahatmatma, but I don't want to agglomerate you with names, crowd you with names. Sanat Kumara was also an equivalent name of the title of being the king of the world. The descriptions about the king of the world were, are that the king of the world, if you'd consider him a yogi, he's like bigger than Milarepa, bigger than anybody we have known in the last 2,000 years. Like there's not been anybody in Kali Yuga who has been as great as the king of the world. The king of the world is usually a function given to somebody who is almost 100% there completely. People are saying, to say, how do you compare it with Jesus? You don't, because Jesus is not a yogi belonging to this planet. Jesus is an avatar, a descent of God on the face of this earth. So you cannot compare Shambhala with Krishna and with Jesus. Because these people are not from this planet. These are divine spirits that incarnated in a human body and play the game of appearances, but their origin was different. So Jesus and Krishna and others like them, they don't come from Shambhala. They come from a place which is much, much beyond Shambhala. And Shambhala is only cooperating with them because those are like directly from God. The king of the world from Shambhala is like the closest you can get to Jesus as a human being. Is a human being who is almost like Krishna, almost like Jesus. Not identical, but almost. 
So the descriptions about the king of the world given in Tibetan lore are that the king of the world is constantly in samadhi, he is constantly in prayer, meditation, ecstasy, and his function is to connect with God. Like if God simply says, tomorrow planet Earth is over. It's finished. That's it. Then Brahmatma will know. As soon as that decision is given, Brahmatma will say, oops, the divine consciousness has taken a decision and now things are coming. No, prepare everybody. So he is the buffer. He is the link. He is the connection because he is the one which has this karma yoga. Stay in samadhi. Stay in samyama. Stay in union. Stay in constant connection. That's what you are put there for. To be, that's how you are the king of all the enlightened beings of Shambhala. Through that. So, Tibetans also revealed the name of the present king of the world, which is not a big deal, because everybody would know that name from the standpoint of their culture. The name of the king of the world was considered to be like a mantra, that just by calling in your mind or in your heart that name, it's like the king of the world would hear you, because he is in superconsciousness constantly, and would kind of, and of course he doesn't want too many people to repeat his name all the time for all sorts of insignificant, stupid things, like out of curiosity, for example. No, because then it's like you have a lot of mosquitoes disturbing you during meditation, you know. So he doesn't need mosquitoes disturbing him. And that's why the name of the king of the world was generally kept very private, and even Tibetan citizens, they didn't know it was not used outside in the masses and when the Tibetan lamas they heard that a guy like uh, Ferdinand Osendowski knew that name and also this other guy Royerich, Nicholas Royerich, uh, their jaw dropped completely. It was like how the heck did you hear that name? Like it's not allowed to even pronounce it for the people who are not initiated. You know, it's like you are talking about something, you know, don't disturb, don't, don't go there. Uh, because this name has been published already in several places, I don't have any, especially in a yoga school, in a satsang, I don't have any problem in sharing it with you. And the name is the second line after the title. The Tibetans knew, they were told by people coming from Shambhala physically and talking to them, to the Dalai Lamas and so on, that the present king of Shambhala... We don't know if he has been there for 300 years or for 800 years, but we know that they go about a thousand years each. The present king of Shambhala, at least 40, 50 years ago, was called Rigden Jiepo. Obviously, be aware of the fact that Tibetans would not call him uh, John the Baptist. Because what's John the Baptist in Tibet? It's a sort of a, it's a hieroglyphical sound which doesn't exist in Tibet. No? So Tibetans would need to be told Tibetan names. So the name has a Tibetan sonority to it. But other people have used other names. For example, Ferdinand Barbarossa, the king of the Holy Roman Empire, one of the German old kings, had letters from the king of Shambhala. And the king of Shambhala presented, remember, this was the medieval Europe. 
medieval Europe was first of all a fanatically Christian environment. So anything which would not look Christian would automatically be qualified as heathen. So the king of Shambhala, if they wanted to interface with Ferdinand Barbarossa, they had to speak in his language so that he would be open. So the king of Shambhala calls himself in those letters Prester John. And it's not clearly understood if he is John the Apostle of Christ or if he is John the Baptist, but more probability is that he looks like John the Apostle, one of the twelve apostles of Christ, became, 100 years later, 500 years later, we don't know, king of Shambhala. And he was called, maybe he was also called Rigdenjiepo, but he didn't tell that name. He said, that's the name by which the Tibetans would know me, for you, because you are a fanatic medieval Christian king in the 12th century, call me Prester John. Prester is an old English language word, which is a sort of a parson, a preacher of some sort, a priest. It's an old-fashioned word. So it was like Priest John. And when we'll get to the facts, I will even try to read to you some of the fragments of the letters which Ferdinand Barbarossa and this mysterious Prester John, which is none of the kings known to history, what messages they have exchanged and what descriptions are given there. Because it blows your mind away completely and you realize, wait a second, this is a letter which exists in a museum. It's a historical artifact, you know, it's not something invented by some new age people. These are things right there. So, the king of the world, Brahmatma or Sanat Kumara, or called Rigdenjiepo by the Tibetans as a name, and the two deputies, we have never been, there is not one single piece of literature which gives the name of any one of them. We don't know the name of any one of them. We just know the titles. And what is known about them is that Mahatma is the one which is the deputy which holds the side of initiation. As I told you, one of the main functions of Shambhala is to keep spirituality alive. Not too much and not too little. Like spirituality cannot disappear, but in Kali Yuga there will not be too much of it. And that's why there is a sort of a management of the spirituality on this planet. Mahatma is the minister of the king of the world that deals with this. Mahatma is, if you want, is the chief of all the gurus and of all the lamas and of all the swamis and of all the teachers, of all the spiritual initiators. Whatever spiritual initiation is given in this world, that you go to a Sufi Darga and they teach you how to kiss the shoulder of your elder and start spinning and pray to Allah, or that somebody teaches you Kundalini Yoga and how to rise your Kundalini, any initiation in any spiritual method which is working, because we live in Kali Yuga and there are many bullshit spiritual methods which are just fantasy and they don't work, then any spiritual method which works is overlooked by Shambhala. Not always consciously. Like we who are spiritual teachers, we know that Shambhala is peeking over our shoulder. 
everybody who is a clever spiritual teacher knows this or should know this, that we are not alone. We are not doing whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. That's why upholding the tradition, not falsifying the data of the tradition, is very important. Because, for example, in the moment when you start adulterating things, then Shambhala gets pissed off. says, there we have a fake teacher. Stop supporting that teacher, because that teacher is talking rubbish. Try to correct him or her, and if in 10 years it doesn't work, then let go. No, let him just slam himself against the wall and see the consequences of his or her own actions. Normally, Shambhala would support not in a visible or obvious way. Even spiritual, every spiritual teacher would like to have a confirmation, like Shambhala, is it good? It would be such a blessing if Shambhala would talk to us all day long. But it doesn't. Because there are many, many things involved in this, including free will, choice. Everybody has to fight with their own doubt. Even Jesus had to fight with his doubt and he was a divine incarnation. Therefore, everybody has their own things. So Shambhala does help. And most of the time, not in a visible, obvious way. There is a sort of a invisible hand. But you look and you say, where is it? Not obviously. Yeah, very discreet. And the side of the initiation is symbolized by the, in Christianity, in the Western Christian culture, by the symbol of the pontiff. I don't know if you know, but sometimes when they speak about the, po the Pope, they say the pontiff sovereign. I don't know if you know where that comes from, where, why the Pope is called the pontiff. It comes from the Latin expression called Pontifex Maximus. And Pontifex, Pontifex is a bridge maker. So the Pope can make a bridge between you and Jesus. He is the bridge maker. He is the man who goes between this world and the other. In the Scandinavian mythology, this function is the rainbow. The rainbow is the connection between this world and the other world. And to cross from this world to the other world, like to bring blessings from the other world to this world, or to make offerings from this world to the other world, you need a bridge maker. In Christianity, at least in Catholic Christianity, that was the Pope. That's a function of the Pope. The Pope is like the key holder, is the bridge maker. Pontifex Maximus, the greatest bridge maker. That's why he's called pontiff. So Mahatma is the pontiff. Mahatma is the invisible pontiff. Mahatma is the one which deals with all the acts of initiation and spiritual education on the face of this earth. The second division is more difficult to understand, but logical if you think about it. Mahanga is simply the side of temporal power. Like Shambhala seems to be a very inoffensive group of a hundred thousand Francis of Assisi, like hermits, tied up with a rope and staying in prayer. And when it comes to having money, power, this, they would be like innocent as lambs and doves. But don't forget that Shambhala is 
the buffer with God. And they are in charge. If this planet is a school, and the comparison is very, very good, if this planet is a school, then there is an admin team that runs the school, plus the teachers in the teacher's room. And the teachers and the admin team, even in the most liberal school in this world, they cannot let things go beyond a certain level. Like what would be if 10 of the students of the school are buying 100 kilos of dynamite and then they start dynamiting the school. They put all the cartridges of dynamite and they prepare to light the fuse. Then obviously the management would come and say, this one doesn't work. This one won't fly. Like this is across the red line because the school is not yours. You are temporarily going through this school. This school doesn't belong to you. So you can use it. We let you free. You don't see us. But if you are really becoming too naughty, then you will see us. Or something will happen. Thomas Andrew gives us an example that at Palomar in Spain, a B-52 bomber of the American Navy fell in the Atlantic Ocean with I don't know how many, 7 or 12 atomic big bombs, like hydrogen bombs, armed. It was an exercise of war. And the funny thing is that none of them exploded. We're talking about the military-grade material, which has double and triple safeties, and the bombs fell with the airplane in the water, and they went after a week, and they picked them up one by one. The bombs had not exploded. And they couldn't explain how military equipment does malfunction in warlike exercises. The same Thomas Andrew claims that this great story in 1980-something, there was a story where a stork, uh, a flock of birds, alerted the American defense system against missiles, like Russian missiles were coming. And it was just birds. But the radar could not see the difference, and they thought missiles are coming. And the system is supposed to kick back in six minutes. Like in six minutes, the response missiles would have been activated anyway. And the system, which had a triple safe precaution, didn't work. They realized they were birds only after 11 minutes. Meanwhile, the American missiles should have been launched automatically. Without the American president's keyword, or that's what you see in Hollywood movies. But this was an automatic system which was supposed to answer even if everybody is killed. Like it should answer automatically. And it didn't work. So Thomas Andrew says these are examples where people don't know. It's puzzling. It's very speculative. Like, eh, really? Come on, Swami. How do we know? And so, okay, it's speculative. But Thomas Andrew says that's exactly where you see that Shambhala has a strong arm. They can exert mental powers, cities, and other mechanisms by which they control what's happening in the school. The classroom is under control, it's under supervision, but the kids don't know it. The kids think they are alone and that they are doing their thing. This part, which is the discipline part of Shambhala, the control part, this is headed by the other deputy called Mahanga. This would be like the chief of police. There is a police of Shambhala, and the model of this 
This is the side of the temporal power. If the Mahatma is the priest, then the Mahanga is the king. Remember that in all the traditional societies, Japan, India, European medieval time and before and after that, the society was ruled by two privileged classes. The priests, the religion, which are in India called Brahmins, and they are number one. And the people that bear weapons, which are the knights in Europe, and the kings, the leaders of armies, which are number two. In India, those are called Kshatriyas, it's the warrior caste, and it comes number two. Like according to the Vedic system, the kings should listen to the Brahmins. If, the, if a king gets angry and wants to start a war, he goes and asks the Brahmin. And the, if the Brahmin tells him, you are an egoistic bastard and you are about to fuck your kingdom, sit down, stop, shut up. Then the king is supposed to listen to the Brahmin. The Brahmin has counseling authority over the king because ideally the Brahmins were spiritual practitioners who could go in high states and have the intuition of what's happening and all that. Shambhala is exactly like this. It has the priestly part and the kingly or the knightly part. More about this later. At the top, they are one. The highest priest is the king. Try to think about the Jewish religion. David is the king of Israel, but he is the top prophet of Israel as well at that time. So the king is the prophet. The prophet or the priest is the king. Where did you hear that 20th century example? Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama is the high priest. No, he is a high lama, but he was also having the authority of the king. Ever since the French Revolution and the American Revolution, the modern government styles are trying to stop that from happening. It's called the separation of religion from state. That's a dogma which comes from the Freemasonic mentality. It's the Freemasons who brought it in America with George Washington and this. And it is going against the traditional Vedic or Shambhala structure. In the Shambhala structure, the supreme king is the supreme priest. Like Melchizedek, and I can give you Old Testament examples, and others, and others. And at the top, they are supposed to be one. But it doesn't happen nowadays, because precisely, so that's why, for example, the Dalai Lama will never get Tibet back. They say he's an honorable citizen of Canada. That's just wanking. It's just bullshit like you can see in WikiLeaks and so on. No, What politicians say and what they actually do are two completely different things. This is just politically correct stuff that people say, oh, the Dalai Lama, he has a Nobel Prize for peace. Nobody really supports him. Why? Because he is priest and king. He is pope and king at the same time. And this is simply not accepted. There will be no so-called democratic government in the West today that will support that. 
That's why the Dalai Lama in the last 10 years, he announced that Tibet, in case Tibet ever gets free, it will be ruled by politicians and by a prime minister and that he will retire. Because there is no way in which they are going to give Tibet back to a king priest. Because that's the old way of doing things and the modern politics doesn't like that because of the amount of power which it brings to the holder of this. And you can have so many examples. The three mages who came to visit Jesus, they were mages, astrologers, whatever, but they were kings. Kings were mages, mages were kings. The pharaohs, the Egyptian pharaohs, the pharaoh was also the high priest of the Egyptian religion. And they had special rules, like they had to get married with their own sister and brother. There was a consanguinity there which destroyed them slowly, slowly. Moses. Moses the prophet was king and prophet for a while. He was ruler, both temporal and religious. Melchizedek, I mentioned David. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, what did the regular Jewish person on the street do? They said, this man is our king. They put leaves in front of his, eh? and they proclaimed him king. Like, this should not Herod, not the asshole called Herod. That's a collaborator. The actual king, this man deserves to be king. Then we will be successful, like in the time of King David. Like, we need to have a king that is possessed by God. That's the real king. And it can continue. The Dalai Lama being the last example, a very anachronic example in this. There is a little bit of this principle in a very disturbing place, which is, of course, the Ayatollah of Iran, who actually holds the administrative power as well, not literally speaking, but the greatest religious leader of Iran tells to the president of Iran what is right and what is not right. That's why uh, it's up to you to meditate and to find out if the Iran government is loved by Shambhala or despised by Shambhala. I'm just opening a door for you. Try to find out because many of these things don't need to be politically correct. We live in a hellish-like time, and a wonderful, very witty um, Polish writer, science fiction writer called Stanislav Lem. Stanislav Lem, in one of his book of aphorisms, he wrote a lot of aphorisms, very witty aphorisms, and one which I loved very much was In Hell, the devil is the good character. No, because the devil is boss in hell. You cannot say that when if you go to hell, you cannot say that guy is the monster. Because they would torture you immediately. They would kill you immediately. They would do whatever. No, you cannot blame the devil in hell because that's where he's boss. And therefore, in hell, the devil is the king. He is the praiseworthy person. So you have a president like George W. Bush. Then you have to think, is this guy the devil or is this guy second-born Christian, whatever, half of a saint or something? Like, if we live in hell, the good guy seems to be bad and the bad guy seems to be good. 
So, this is very inspiring. I'm going to conclude uh, in a while and continue next time. But remember that this means this classical duality between Brahmins and Kshatriya. In Europe, between priests and knights. Knights were not priests, but they could do some paladin, common job, and so on. This is accurate in the traditional societies. Like in Japan, you had the Buddhist priests and the samurai, which are the kshatriyas of Japan. The two classes, like the... Again, I'm not trying to justify old-fashioned forms, but they come from a tradition. And the idea is... 50%, 80% of the populations are morons who just want to eat and drink and be happy. And then there is a number of 10% people or something who are more responsible and want to be leaders, politicians, organizers, charity, like they want to rise above, they want to be of service. And those people become of service either in a religious way through their meditation and prayer or they become of service in a chivalrous way, like being chivalry. For example, the knights in the medieval time, many of the knights were celibate. When you see Hollywood movies, you see propaganda, because somebody since the French Revolution on hated them and tries to smear them with mud. When you read history, you are going to see that some orders of knights they are incredibly holy. Charlemagne, the great Carolus Magnus of France, read, go on Wikipedia and read. Charlemagne, a French king around the year 900, 800, he lived like a monk. He lived in a monastery, in a cell, dressed in sack. Ah, Louis XVI, a spoiled imbecile who lived in the 17th century or 18th century, he was an egoistic, decadent branch of that. They had forgotten because Kali Yuga became worse and worse. The kings and the knights became worse and worse. And today when somebody is benighted by the Queen of England or something, it's a caricature, it's nothing. Doesn't mean the same thing. But in the old days, starting from King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table... This was a great ideal that we don't need only priests. We also need some people to keep the order in the society. And those people should be very fair because they are the custodians. And the big question from the Roman legal system is who will guard the custodians? Who will guard the guardians? Because the guardians have a certain freedom and then they can start abusing their power. And that's why the guardians have to be people of impeachable moral integrity who will not take advantage. People who do karma yoga perfectly. People of great humbleness and people who have no big ego. And for a few centuries, they managed. There were actually many like this. And many of the knights were priests at the same time. They were celibate. They were not married. Many of them, some were married, but not all of them. They are orders which are consecrated to celibacy. And in the Christian environment, the knights were called militia dei, the militia of God. They didn't work for the king. They worked for God. And when you see movies with knights, they say you should protect the children, the elderly, 
the widows, the women, the poor, the weak. It's the militia. It's militia. It's the protector of the weak who goes around with their sword in hand and sees, is there any social injustice happening around here? No? Like only very pure people would go into that direction. So very few people, many people understand that there is the spiritual class, the Brahmins or others, they are spiritual. Today in India, not even the Brahmins are spiritual. The Brahmins in India today, 99% of them do business and pile up money. They have become greedy just like the rest of the society. So there are no more Brahmins. Today priests in Christianity, they are buggering choir boys and doing all sorts of shit like this and embezzling money and flying expensive jets and so on. So they are not up to that level. And of course the knights are no longer there. There is no more militia of God doing things in the name of God. And um, don't forget, ultimately, that uh, everything gets perverted. For example, in Indian legends, the, the sixth avatara, I'm sorry, the seventh avatara of Vishnu is called Rama, and the eighth is Krishna. So Rama is even before Krishna, like Rama is in Ramayana, maybe six, seven thousand years ago, maybe much more. It's difficult to measure the time with it. Rama, it's, Rama is like Jesus, it's like a descent of God, it's an avatar. Exactly which one of them would come, be coming from where, that's metaphysics, let's not go there. Fact is that both Rama and Krishna and Jesus, at least these three, they are avatars. So Rama... <laughs> it's interesting that in Thailand, their royal house is the Rama. They are called Rama, King Rama Wanto. They take that name as respect for that. And the protector, the epoch, the, 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 the epical text, which is the, behind the Thai culture, is Ramayana. You see all these Garuda images and so on, even the emblem, which is on the government flag. It's all from Ramayana. So Rama came... As an avatar came, what did Rama do? Rama, in case you'd bother to read, Rama was a warrior. Not only God, but a warrior. And he had a mission to clean the house. He is called Parashu Rama. Parashu means an axe. It's a battle axe. This axe is used in battle. Because he was armed with a battle axe. And he, he threshed the ground. He cleansed the house. Parashurama, for example, discovered in India, says the legend, uh, a region where all the kshatriyas, all the militia of God, was not of God anymore. They were just selfish people making rules because they had the swords, they had the power. Parashurama simply killed them all, wiped them all. Like sometimes the hand of God is not light, like in the stories with Sodom and Gomorrah and so on. Uh, God doesn't have a light hand when he acts, he acts. And Parashurama is an example of that. So anyway, don't forget that the king wears a crown. And the crown, Keter, is the name of the crown chakra in Kabbalah. And to have a golden crown on your head, it's a symbol of Sahasrara. So the initiation to be a king meant... Be in touch with the king of the world from Shambhala. Serve God 
Open your Sahasrara. This is a supreme karma yoga. Even in Thailand, they say that their previous king was a Dharma Raja, a king that observed the Dharma. And they say that he was a Bodhisattva because only very high level souls who have had thousands and thousands of lifetimes, in the end, one of the tests, one of the last steps is that they are made kings just to see what will they do with that power. And the Thai population evaluates that that king, called today Rama 9, he had used his power very wisely and very spiritually. And because of this, they venerated him like almost a Buddha. They simply said, this man is like a Buddha to be his sacred. He is Rama 9. He has a crown and he deserves to have a crown. Because indeed, he does things in the name of God. Things in the name of God might not be very popular. Like it is the king of Thailand who decreed that they don't sell alcoholic beverages between 2 to 5 o'clock and after 12 o'clock in the night. It's very annoying for the booze-loving tourists who just come to slosh themselves and to get their dicks sucked in patpong. Very annoying for the vice-ridden people. But for the people who are actually looking for purity, it's good. No? Maybe if Rama himself would have been king, he would have decreed not to have alcohol at all. No? So that's why I'm saying uh, it's not, it doesn't necessarily get very popular. And sometimes, you know, it's like somebody would go to Amsterdam and say, let's stop all the marijuana in Amsterdam. If Jesus would do that, he would be crucified in less than three days. Somebody would kill him on the spot if he would try to stop marijuana in Amsterdam. No? It's not because marijuana is good. It's because people are so attached to it that they would kill even Jesus if he would take it away from them. Thus, uh, think always, not only through your personal ego, but think also through the, through the prism of principles in an ideal world, in a perfect world, in which we don't dare to believe anymore, because what we see around is so crappy. But in a perfect world, what would happen? It's like that famous story, like what would Buddha do? Or what would Jesus think? You know that very often the answer would be catastrophic. If you apply these questions, what would, what would Jesus do now? It's like, you don't want to know. We better don't ask that question because nobody wants to hear the answer to that question, you know. So, in this way, um, so, these are the two functions and they make me come. I will stop after uh, finishing this paragraph to tell you about the Easter of Shambhala. The initiates, the function of the initiates. Let's say in Shambhala, there are 100,000 Buddhas. What do they do? The initiates meditate inspire, they burn the planetary karma, they build bridges, they are the pontifexes. As I said last time, maybe you came to yoga because somebody from Shambhala telepathically guided you to come to yoga. You don't know, you don't see, they will never tell you. When you will become enlightened, you will know, then all doors will be open. But until that time, it's not, it's like you don't need to know all the things. And that's why there is a lot of influence 
a lot of influence. Many people don't understand this telepathic, energetic influence, but it is there all the time. It's exactly like the man who wants to quit smoking and the demons of tobacco, they go and say, smoke, 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 smoke. And your hands start trembling and then you pick up a cigarette and you light it. That's, that's telepathic influence. It's psychological pressure. You don't know physically, you don't see, because if you'd see, you'd say, come on, fuck off, leave me alone. No, you don't see anything, but it's there. 24-7. Masturbate, masturbate, masturbate. Smoke, smoke, smoke. Pot, pot, pot. Everything. All these and many others are the result of interferences with such spirits. So, such influence is negative, but what if somebody would exert it positively? What if Swami Shivananda would tell you, detach, 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 be more detached, be more detached. That's a help. You are 50-50 and somebody gives you just the 1% push, which makes the difference between 51 to 49. Everybody's soul is in a precarious balance. We are in the crossfire. We are in the twilight zone. We are in no man's land between light and darkness. And our soul oscillates. Should I go into light or should I go into darkness? And of course, the demons say, come to us, come to us. But also the angels also say, no, 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 come up here, come up here. And uh, your soul responds to that. Any one of you who has the intuition to purify, to do spiritual diet, to do sublimation of energy, to do practice, like asanas, mudras, bandhas, pranayamas, and more. Meditation, of course, and others. These are spiritual influences, and some of it may be a bit of help from Shambhala. This comes, it happens, because the initiates of Shambhala meditate. Sometimes, here in the school, we do marathons of meditation on Mahashivaratri or on the Goddess Festival, and uh, I've seen Sufis doing it in Istanbul and so on, where we'll say, let's meditate, all of you here, let's meditate for three days, non-stop. Would you be happy that we organize a 72-hour marathon of meditation? And the principle is, there should never be in the yoga hall less than three people meditating. So, put a table on the wall and sign your name. I will. I promise I will show up from this hour to this hour, from this hour to this hour, and then it's like a marathon. It's like people are passing the meditation on from one to the next, and in this room there is meditation 72 hours non-stop. That's exactly how they do it in Shambhala. In Shambhala, some of the masters are constantly meditating. Not the same all the time. They just pass it on, and constantly there are thousands of masters in meditation, just focusing on the earth. This meditation has various effects. It inspires some people to do moral, ethical, good deeds or to practice spirituality. It is giving blessings. It is giving solace and support to some people who are in great difficulties. And it builds bridges. It's opening paths. And Mircea Eliade the man who wrote the first PhD on yoga, he was in the 1930s, in the early 1930s in India. 
and he studied with Swami Shivananda, he studied Sanskrit with Das Gupta, and uh, he had a few great teachers also in spirituality. And he heard about Shambhala. It was impossible, especially in the North India, in Rishikesh, in those places. He heard about Shambhala. And then when he started practicing yoga, he practiced yoga for a couple of years, and unfortunately, he didn't have the perseverance to take it to the end. He became a scholar instead of becoming a Buddha. Unlike Alexander Kshoma de Kyoroshi, the Hungarian Tibetanologist, who started as a scholar and he became a Bodhisattva. So he quit scholarship and he reached enlightenment. Mircea Eliade, unfortunately, quit enlightenment for doing scholarship. He was not very happy because of this, but he writes in one of his autobiographical novels. He says, I can, in my long meditations, I can see the people from Shambhala sitting in their meditation, and I know that if they would not be burning a certain percentage of the negative karma of this planet every day, it's like the garbage cleaners, you know, that somebody has to clean the village or else the garbage piles up. You don't see the garbage cleaners, or you don't seem to pay too much attention to them. But without them, in one week, we'd be in hell. Shambhala, one of their functions of the initiates, is that they are the garbage cleaners. Humanity accumulates a lot, a lot of negative karma. Try to think only about the hundreds of millions of animals slaughtered every year to be eaten when 95% of them actually would not need to be eaten. We are eating animals today, especially in the 21st century, because of pleasure. Because if you just wanted to eat strawberries and potatoes, you'd have strawberries and potatoes in any place of this earth. If you go to Buenos Aires, you can still have potatoes and strawberries. And therefore, as if you go in Greenland, there are supermarkets in Greenland and you can have potatoes and strawberries. Even the Greenlanders don't need to eat seal meat anymore in the 21st century. And thus, what I'm telling you here is that they burn planetary karma. They are not allowed to burn it all, but they burn some of it just to keep major disasters from happening. Mircea Eliade says that he knows that there is a major disaster impeding. He doesn't know what it is, and he realizes that only Shambhala keeps it at bay every day, every day, every day, by burning negative karma. So these are the initiates, and they do that on Easter. The father of one of my pupils here in the previous years, Miguel knows this guy, uh, just got a brain seizure. He just had a stroke two, two, three days ago because of Easter. If you eat too many lambs and too many eggs and too many pigs on Easter, you'll get a stroke, especially if you are ill. Easter was not meant for people to eat lambs and pigs. Only the greed and the materialistic inferiority of people transformed it into an animalistic event. <laughs> the Christmas is coming, let's eat a turkey. Why are the turkeys guilty that Christ was born? No, why should the turkeys be punished for the birth of Christ? And why should the lambs be punished for the resurrection of Christ? So obviously it's not the intention of Jesus. It's just that people are bloody beasts and animals. 
And they would use anything to just stuff their faces and kill more animals, you know. And they pretend that's going to make Jesus happy. Oh yeah, we ate a lamb for Jesus. Jesus definitely is happy that we celebrated Easter. Jesus is going like, oh my God, you know, it's like... Those morons are irrecuperable, you know. It's like, when will that planet wake up, you know. It's like, no, Easter is not made for slaughtering lambs, you know. It's like, that, that's moronic, completely. And thus, what I'm saying here is that when it's Easter, as well as when it's New Year and Christmas, Shambhala is working. It's exactly like you say, on Sundays, police has to still be working. Yeah. Police is working on Sunday and is taking a break, break on Monday because it's a less busy day or whatever. In the same way, Shambhala is working on Easter. But they also love Jesus. They have a great veneration for Jesus because nobody has been quite like Jesus. Jesus is like, wow, even for Shambhalians. And then Shambhala wants to celebrate Easter. So what do they do? They do it one week later. They say, let, let people go on it, have this whole week of enthusiasm, and then when things are cooling down a little bit, we can lay the tables. And instead of 50,000 initiates meditating every hour, we can leave just a small team of 1,000 meditating, and the other 49,000 can come with the rest of the community and feast. That's why... This tradition came from very strange traditions in popular traditions in Eastern Europe, in which peasants living in the mountains, villages, which they knew there was nobody above their village, like upstream. They had small creeks and rivers in the mountain, and they knew they were going and picking up berries and mushrooms and everything. They knew the mountain. They knew there was nobody living higher up the mountain. They were the highest settlement up that river, up that mountain. And elders from those communities would come the next Sunday with eggshells from the river. They said, look what I found in the river. Like, somebody lives up there, like on Mount Olympus. Like they say the same in Mount Athos in Greek that there are seven enlightened Christian beings who live on top of Mount Athos, and nobody can see them. They hide, but they are up there on Mount Athos. Or like the gods of Olympus lived high on Mount Olympus. In the same way, Shambhala lives on the top of every mountain. Like Ramana Maharishi said, on top of Arunachala, there is Lord Shiva himself. And Lord Shiva is also on Mount Kailash. And Lord Shiva is this and that. So, exactly the same kind of superstition... They would say, look, today, one week after Easter, I went to the river to wash something, and there were egg, fresh eggshells in the river coming from upstream. And that for them, it meant now, the people from Shambhala, they don't call them Shambhala, they are various names for various folklores, the people from Shambhala celebrate a belated Easter. It's a late Easter. That's why here in Agama, because we are on the side of yoga and we are on the side of initiation, we want to celebrate Shambhala, I'm sorry, Easter with Shambhala as well. We celebrated the Catholic one, we celebrated the Orthodox one, and next Sunday is the Shambhala Easter. So at 12 o'clock, we make one more meditation with Christ together with Shambhala.
because we know that Shambhala has their own celebration. Again, you don't have to take it very strictly. It's more like an act of communing with Shambhala in spirit. And uh, I will not say now more about the others. I spoke about the initiates. What do the initiates of Shambhala do? They stay in meditation. They burn karma. They bless. They supervise this. And uh, what is the function of Mahanga or the Knights of Shambhala? I will better start that uh, next time because it's a bit of a long story. It's more unusual just for you to understand that in spirituality there are two forms of spiritual initiation to the sacerdotal or the priesthood type and the chivalry or the knighthood type. Both of them are away. For example, the samurai of Japan were practicing a code called Bushido. I don't know if you understand what Bushido means, but Bushido means to serve Buddha. That means even if your feudal master tells you, you are guilty, commit seppuku by sunset, slit your belly, you do it for Buddha. Even if they ask you to give your life, you die for Buddha. It's like a military karma yoga. It's a military type, Manipura type karma yoga that the samurai were doing. And by doing it, they hoped to get enlightened. For them, it was a path. So there is a path of enlightenment which you do like this. And there is a path of enlightenment which you do like this. And in time, each and every one of you are going to find out if your soul is the soul of a Brahmin or if your soul is the soul of a knight. Because some of you are born to be knights, your typology. It's like your DNA, the DNA of your soul, so to speak, to use a metaphor. And some people are inclined, so some people are inclined to be meditators, Buddhas, hermits, lamas in a cave, and some of you are inclined to be the militia of God. And for both of them, the ways are separate. For example, in the Orthodox Church and in the Catholic Church and many others, when a man gets married to a woman, it's clear that he and she will not be monks or nuns. Because it's a commitment, right? You get married and you say, now I'm going to be with you for the rest of my life. So you are not going to be a monk in a monastery. Neither the woman is going like a nun in a monastery. Ah, that occasionally, anecdotally, there have been people who lived together for 20 years and then they looked at each other and they said, shouldn't we better belong in monastery? Like I go to a men's monastery, you go to a women. Yes, it did happen because they realized that they took the wrong choice 20 years ago. And then they found their new choice. But when a man and a woman get married, both in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox and others, I suppose, I haven't seen the rituals of all of them, the priest during the ceremony puts crowns on their heads. They are crowned. Because in the moment when you are married, you take the path of the knights. You become a king and a queen. You are not like Milarepa in a cave. You belong to the other department of life. Life allows you to reach enlightenment in two ways. The contemplative way, by direct sadhana, by direct spiritual practice, 
or the karma yoga way by the path of the king and of the queen. And therefore, this is a very beautiful teaching because especially in a school which is tantric and where we take the world, you know, like this is how the world is, not everybody in this room who will practice spirituality 10 years from now is going to be a monk or a nun. But some of you are going to be kings and queens. Not the kings and queens of today, which are corrupt aristocrats, which have lost their valor, and they just think about their blue blood and pompous titles. The real aristocracy. The real aristocracy of the spirit. Like, you can be benighted by Shambhala. Shambhala says, you are one of us, you are a knight of Shambhala. And if you are a woman, you are also a knight of Shambhala, a king and a queen of Shambhala. So spiritual path is very beautiful because it has many possibilities. It has many alternatives. It's true, most of the people who live in monasteries and in Sufi dargahs and in Indian ashrams, they are the Brahmins. They are dressed in white and they meditate. But that's not the only spirituality which exists. There is the other department of Mahanga, which is very inspiring and equally strong for some of you. All both these departments, they worked hard last Sunday, and they worked hard two Sundays ago, and they are going to have a big smile on their faces next Sunday. And that's why we have a Shambhala Easter to attune to this great thing. I'm in the middle of the big, big paragraph of telling you about the structure of Shambhala, and I get stuck into this, explaining this twofold side of initiation, the path of the priest and the path of the king. And I have much more to tell you, to give examples and inspiration, but that will happen next week. So next week, I'll continue with the third part of this presentation of what is Shambhala made of. When you look at the Yantra of Shambhala, just for those of you who want to see that graphically it's there, it's made of two parts. The middle part is like a flower, and it's like a Buddhist mandala. And that's the part of contemplation, interiorization, and spirituality. And in the end, in the out of it, there is like a thick wall, like a tower, like a fortress, like a stone wall around the fortress. That is Mahanga, because Shambhala also has to be guarded. I told you last week that some British explorer tried to work to go with coolies and to walk in the forbidden area, which in those days it was forbidden. And, and a storm started. It is not Mahatma who started that storm. It is Mahanga who started that storm. It's the police of Shambhala, which simply said, okay, if you get stubborn, here is a little bit of a stopper for you. No, and they could have upgraded it more and more and more until they would have given up. There was no way they could twist the arm of Shambhala and get in because it's much, much uh, deeper than that. More about it in the coming week where we'll continue with part three. Thank you all for joining tonight and I hope I'll see you at the Shambhala Easter on Sunday. And if you have any questions which come by this series of satsangs, Remember those of you who participated Q&As on Tuesdays, that's the time when you ask me questions if you want to pursue one of these subjects more in depth. 
With this, we have finished for now.